Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Castingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. In this episode, I talk with Dan Hagen, CEO of Uptera. Water is a major topic of conversation, especially when it comes to agriculture. Uptera is actually restructuring water in a way that not only decreases the need for water, but increases the yield of crops. It is truly revolutionary technology, and Dan has a great story as an entrepreneur. So let's dive right in. So I'd love to just start out with, you know, what's your what's your background? How'd you, you know, where are you originally from and where did you get interested in the concept of water? I'm a lifelong entrepreneur by necessity, not by intellect or IQ or drive. Uh, so I became very independent at the age of 15 where I was separated from my family on purpose by me. So having to support myself through school uh, in high school, and I did stuff back then that I'm confident that, you know, teachers, administrators, the vice principal would all get in huge trouble for today because I, in essence, scout surfed for like a month at a time and did that for almost three years of of my high school education. Uh, I did pretty well. I was quite motivated and apparently trying to please somebody during that time other than myself. So was uh, very good at athletics and academics and musically inclined and all these things and leadership. So I was, you know, one of those, I think I was the president of school for three years, did the announcements for three years, did sports announcing, owned a bunch of little illegal businesses, mostly illegal. I want to say this because I really didn't know about paying taxes. So everything I took in, I kept. Um, and uh, it was not purposefully being the, um, you know, devious or malicious. I just like, yes, I can afford to live in this month. So it was uh, out of necessity. So if I run for president, I guess that's going to have to be one of my things. I have <laughs> not paid all my taxes uh, in my lifetime because that's a fact. Um, so was had the opportunity to go to the University of Arizona first. Uh, so I thought it was going to be for baseball, to be quite honest. And I had some academic scholarship money and I had opportunity to go to college for music. And I was like, I'm going to be an athlete. Uh, and I probably was going to spell it the same way that uh, uh, who was the kid? athlete that does not have three syllables. I think Jim Carrey was athlete does not have three syllables. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I went down there and I bombed out. I, uh, I had had a pretty bad injury when I was younger and uh, University of Arizona has some recruiting issues. Like every, it seems like it's just cyclical everywhere universities go. Somebody's getting into trouble. Look, when Notre Dame gets into trouble, you know, all universities get into trouble. <laughs> exactly. They're all playing the same game. It's just who gets caught. And so I ended up going to ASU into business school, um, which was honestly just a joy and a blessing. And I didn't know it at the time. Uh, so, and one of the things I did is I became the president of the uh, business school and was, did that for two years. And it was wonderful. And I'll, I'll give you a little secret. So when you're the president of like a prominent business school like that, you have an office on campus next to the PhD and graduate student assistants. I'm just saying, if you need help with homework, their offices are right next. I'm just saying, they're right there. It's kind of helpful. So my loyalty, even though I originally came here and can sing the fight song better here at the U of A, is I'm an ASU person. So I have my Sun Devil gear and Sun Devil shirts and everything. What school did you go to? Um, so I went to Arizona State. Um, I, I actually was applying to the Naval Academy pretty much ever since like third grade. I was like, I, I want to go to the Naval Academy. Here's what I'm going to do. 
I was in a Navy program all through high school, um, pretty much like lined myself up to do it and I didn't get in. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and I was, I was much like you growing up where, you know, I was athletically inclined and not as much on the music side, although I've always had an ear for music and, um, you know, intelligent, but always needed to be challenged. Yeah. Just, I didn't get in and it was, it was, it was heartbreaking at the time. And it was like, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to get there. So I went to a military prep school, um, that kind of like you take the SAT three times and the ACT twice in three months, and it literally preps you for the academy again. And so I went to that, went through the whole thing and didn't get in again. And I I would get to the final step every time. I mean, it's literally like they sit around a table and they get, they narrow it down from about 10,000 applicants to 1200. They present you in a PowerPoint presentation and red brick, green brick, majority wins. That's pretty much how it goes. Um, and I would get the red brick. And so I, you know, would obviously devastated when that happened as well. Um, and a buddy of mine was at Arizona state and he goes, Hey, dude, why don't you just come down here? The school's awesome. It's really, really good school. Um, the people here are awesome. It's great weather. You'll have a blast. So I was like, you know what? Why not? And I just applied, got in and rest was history. And it was, it was such an interesting experience because for me, college ended up being such an experience to figure out how to work with people, all different types of backgrounds, all different types of people. I wouldn't quite say that I was the person in the classroom all the time. Um, in fact, I was sometimes like actively avoiding going to class. But to me, it was like, what can I learn from this class? You know, I was, I was always involved in like business and marketing and stuff like that. And I was, I was getting thrown out of class because I was working in marketing at the time and the professor would say something and I would go, Hey, like, that's not how it works. I'm in the business. And he was like, get out of class. I was like, okay, fine. So I was always that kid that was just kind of like, there's got to be something more to it. And ASU in a weird way, I mean, I think you didn't realize it at the time either it, it kind of fosters that community of like learning how to work with everybody and and learning how to work with anybody and i think that that was the coolest thing that i learned from from being down there and just i love i love the school um i was on the sailing team and triathlon team and did all the all that fun thing so yeah i'm, I'm fascinated by the naval academy so you have to have a senator sign off as well typically mm-hmm. on an mm-hmm. uh, applicant and you had that you had that dialed mm-hmm. in Yep. Had the congressional nomination both years, Um, but they have, so they have 10 nominations and then they have a primary nomination. So I wasn't the primary, but I was a nominee. So um, the primary pretty much automatically gets in. And then the next nomination, it's a little bit more of a step. It's a, it's a weird pecking order, how it, how it all works. Um, I think it's one of those scenarios where I would have performed very well in that environment, but I'm very happy I didn't end up in that environment. Cause I think the way that I work and the way that I think, I don't think is as conducive for like that tight, tight military structure. Um, I work well in structure, but I'm a lot more of a creative problem solver that I think sometimes, uh, the ways that I would solve a problem wouldn't be accepted. So I'm the same to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. It's, um, th- there's no doubt about that, that from the creativity perspective and the discipline part, absolutely. Could, I could get that mm-hmm. down. What I feel like I would be um, bookend or stifled for my thought process, definitely. Mm-hmm. And especially if you had to squeeze it through this path to get over where you needed to go. So, oh, and by the way, there's 10 more paths that you have to yeah. fill in to get to that too. Versus, you know, let's take a pivot. Let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. But I'm my leadership style is the same as yours to be quiet and learning style. So, um, yeah. So I actually had a question about that. So like you're like growing up and, and, you know, going out on your own, basically at 15 years old, like that, that's not a common occurrence necessarily. And, and you always ended up in a type of leadership role or a type of position where you had a lot of responsibility. Did you feel like 
your situation of, of going out on your own caused you to kind of step up? Or do you think you kind of always had something internally that kind of just drove you to kind of be a leader? I feel I have that as part of my engine, to be quite honest. And, um, you know, everybody has gifts. Most people don't know what the gifts they have. Um, you're, you're probably the same, Steve, when you're speaking to people and it becomes so painfully obvious when you as an outsider are speaking to somebody or you work with a team and you're like, you may not say it as you have this gift, but you're like, Janet, I would love if, to work with you because you have the skill set and this creative aspect that is beyond my scope. Would you, would you work with me on that? And then lift that person up and they fall into these patterns and roles that are very comfortable without putting a label on it without putting them in a box. And so they can fulfill their destiny. And I've, I've had that out of necessity and it definitely fostered. Don't get me wrong, Steve. I've made, you know, catastrophic mistakes. I've, you know, I've lost a couple of businesses that were wipeouts and, you know, for multi-millions of dollars. And I've also had businesses that were successful for, you know, the same amount or up to a hundred million dollars. So it, it's, a lot of it was still learning the school of hard knocks. And one thing I've learned my greatest successes have been uh, were typically from fellow business uh, students that were a CFO type that have gone into the accounting pathway. And the, the reason being is they're so difficult on me. So like you or I as a creative person and, you know, you, you have an idea. I got an idea, you know, and the analogy I always use, and you're way too young for this. There was a movie in the 80s called Night Shift that starred Henry, Henry Winkler and Michael Keaton. Uh, Henry Winkler had a, a morgue, so he was a mortician. And his buddy, Michael Keaton, in this role uh, was the idea guy who wore, you know, red high top, Chuck T's, you know, had black jeans, cool jean coat, but he always had his Walkman in his hand. And they would be talking about stuff. And Michael Keaton, you know, they're a young guy, goofed around. Henry Rincourse playing the straight guy. And he's like, idea 367, feed mayo to tuna fish, click. And, you know, but I'm, I'm kind of that way, not quite to that degree. Uh, I've told that story often because it's kind of how I am. And then CFO is like, yeah, not so much, Dan. So let's model this out. Let's find out if we can make a business unit or percentage or process out of this. And let's make sure that we can, we have the resources allocated to actually make that happen. So the, my, the persons I always thank the most with their business succeeded or failed are my finance teams, which is very ironic, I suppose, but I've been in a CEO or leadership position almost my entire career, uh, which is also very, very unusual. Um, so always in a C-suite spot, even from a very, very young age. And the learnings that I had were so much more profound, exactly what you said when you were in college, exactly what you said. I also owned businesses at the time um, and it was a, a, a PETA to their professors being polite, the acronym, um, but being polite. I'm like, and you know, you get asked a question like, well, what would you do in your business, Dan? And my comments are always the same. Well, honestly, uh, you know, professor, I would do the exact opposite. Literally what you're saying, I would do the exact opposite. And they're like, sometimes it looks up frustrated and sometimes they're not, but um, it, it's always been a little bit different. And uh, the good part is I could do the dissertations or thesis on a lot of things on what I was doing on my daily basis. And just like basically typing stuff up that I had already was did that day for, I'm like, I'm just going to do what I did today. And then 
send, you know, or have print out. And I guess print out back then, we didn't really have the send button. Um, so it was uh, uh, a good a good study in that for sure. But the education, I agree, at ASU prepped me. Uh, I'm a big WP Carey fan and supporter mm-hmm. um, because of that. But, you know, the, the learnings that you have in, in real life and the mistakes you make and the things you do well and keep your humility uh, for sure, because that's my style. Um, I'm, I'm not, I never walk into the room of a leadership opportunity and, um, you know, I've been, this has been said to me often, well, you need to take command of the room right away. I'm like, no, no, I, people know who I am. If I'm coming to the room, I don't have to say anything. Like, we need to take these people on a tour. I'm like, no, I really don't have to take them on a tour. I'll introduce the people who work in the departments and they can give them what they do well, you know, like lift the people up. And I I don't need that, you know, because it's bringing bringing that love and care. And I'm definitely a heart centric leader. It says it on my LinkedIn profile and everything. That's that's the real deal. It's on my business card. I have a heart, heart and hand Uh, that's. That's who I live and who I live to be and on a daily basis. And, and if I, I fail that, you know, my statements are always the same. Anybody that knows me or doesn't know me, uh, this may be a little bit not PG for your podcast. I encourage them to come up to me and kick me in the nuts because I would be so embarrassed if I acted any way other than that type of a person, whether I had $5 in my pocket, $50 million in my pocket, or if I was leading a team of two or leaving a team of $2 million. I would just be humiliated. Um, so I really try to stay grounded to my roots and anything that we do. And I, I feel that's why I was called as a segue into Optera, um, which you know was struggling at the very infancy of a very different space within the water savings perspective on the planet. Um, and I'm saying that because there are a lot of water saving companies out there. You know, you participated, you were, we were had that in our past discussions and from home consuming units to big ag. Um, yeah, what's been the what's been the huge problem to basically solve? So like water's been a topic of conversation. I don't know if everybody that's listening is is as up to date on 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 why water is a topic of conversation in depth. And so I'd love if you could dive in a little bit of that in into that a little bit. And then also like I would I would also love to hear like before we dive specifically into Uptera, you know, what was what was one of your big failures early on that kind of taught you the most? Um, because you mentioned that you, you had businesses that just failed miserably. And usually that's where you learn the biggest lessons to be able to take with you for the rest of your life. Um, and if, if you wanted to dive into it, I would love to hear like, what was one of those failures that, that was really hard? Cause I think most people take a, they get a micro view of where you're at at the time. And, you know, you may be CEO, you may be top of a business that's making a hundred million, you're making headlines and you know, you're that person, but I think a lot of people miss it. There's, there's a lot of those days where you don't get to see that side of the failure, the lessons, the $2 in your pocket versus, you know, 50 million in your pocket or a small team, but the mentality is the same. So what was that kind of like for you as you kind of were a young CEO? The best part about one of my failures was, and there's been a few, uh, and multiple, I should say. And there's, there's things I screw up on a daily basis. Don't, I, I don't pretend I'm, if I had the great fortune of doing a TED talk, it would definitely be a different type of TED talk. And it, it would be as much about the humility of success as the humility of failures. And, but one of them was my mentor on a business sense. And he was a wonderful human being, had a huge team of um, 
MBAs and they are, were modeling kings uh, and kings and queens. They were amazing, uh, producing model after model. And I had done well in a business and he's like, let's start a spinoff, but in a different direction. <clears throat> trust me on this. You know, trust me on this. We'll model this out. We'll help you with the business plan. Uh, we'll set the strategy, put the resources in place. And so I became a checkbook. You know, I became the checkbook to this business. You, know, you can you can still be the CEO. You can run the business, figurehead, whatever you want. President, you can run a VP of sales, whatever whatever you want to do. But you know, we, we you have a successful model. You have success in this industry. You're known in this space. So bankroll us. We'll put it together, and uh, we'll find your successes with that. And what happened was exactly the opposite. I gave the money but I took no personal accountability or control on this opportunity. It wasn't in my language. It wasn't in my style. It became a top-down business versus a bottom-up business. It didn't have the personality and culture that comes with something good or bad that I might do. Uh, people may love my style or hate my style, but it, it's definitely, there's a culture element there. Uh, and I'm all about that. I'm, uh, I was just having that discussion on our daily huddle today, for example. I'm whether we have two people or two two thousand people, uh, I always make sure that the people fit the culture first. That's I'm I like to be the last interview for anybody from a warehouse to a PhD. I don't care who it is because if you don't fit, I'm very quick to make a decision. Like I, I'm so sorry because they're just creating chaos outside of the regular team, and you know it becomes more about Steve uh, versus working as, uh, you know, our teams and with, I, I'm a collaborating human. I love collaboration. I think I heard you say the same thing at ASU kind of brought you together to learn to collaborate with everybody. I'm, I'm super key on that. Um, but that failure was, I gave up that control and I didn't have the culture piece. I wasn't a bottom up leadership, the, everything modeled out beautifully. The, the plan was perfect. The models were perfect. The, Persons we're going to put in place was perfect. The, the structure and vertical market segmentation was all lined up and just amazing. It was soulless. It was just a machine that was had the opportunity to make money, but it didn't have the right persons in there to be like, okay, this is not going to work. So honestly, um, threw all that money into that opportunity and uh, with my mentor, and he he ran hard with it, and he, he was old enough to be a father figure to me. So I, I I mean I truly did trust him as that seeking a father figure, something I didn't have, and um, and with his team, I would call them equivalent or peers, even though a lot of them looking back didn't have like real the funny thing to say, but real world experience. They weren't responsible for real P and L, hiring and firing. They weren't responsible for, you know, being a salesperson every minute of every day for your own business. Mm -hmm. Great on paper to put all these boxes together, but the soulless opportunity became irrelevant. Um, mm -hmm. So that was basically when I grabbed control. And I took a big dip in business for a while after that, by the way, and again, being very mm -hmm. candid. So not only financially, but look from a leadership perspective. I didn't start at the bottom, but I was very careful about what I was going to do next to make sure. It fit kind of the personality and the way I like to work and think. And again, it's not the style for everybody. I, I'm not professing to be like, I'm a business leader and I'm the business mm -hmm. style to take. But for my style and the persons that work with me, um, you know, I, I usually say it this way. I have persons that will take a bullet for me and the people that don't know me and my businesses would like to put a bullet in me. But they've never taken the time to get to know me and, and my leadership style. And 
Um, I've been known to be indifferent or uh, aloof or things that comments that are so confusing to me. And it's only because oftentimes when I'm leading meetings, I'm not saying anything. Mm-hmm. I have people that are qualified. What, why do I need to talk? That's why they're here. I mean, we've worked on the vision or strategy or plan together. This is their moment. I don't, I don't need to say anything. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I've heard comments, you know, whisperings underneath people's breath that, oh, he's very aloof. It doesn't seem very personal. I'm like, you know, I'm the, like the most talkative human on the planet. But in that meeting sentence, I might only say 10 words and that could just be at the end. Like, wow, that was amazing. Thank you so much, John, Susie, and Jill. That you, you knocked it out of the park. Questions? That, that could be it. Like that style is definitely different, you know, versus, mm-hmm. um, you know, a hierarchical style that would be from a military perspective where, mm-hmm. you know, a CEO would be the only one that's doing most of the talking. And very rarely would somebody else be called upon unless they are a subject matter expert and one very minute thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I'd like to have everybody be at least 20 times smarter than I am, which is not hard in, in an office setting and to be to be excellent at what they do. And my biggest compliment always throughout my career is when either I identify or a teammate identifies that's worked with or for me, that it's not, I have to go or, or you have to go, Steve. It's time for you to go, dude, you've, you're tapped out. You've learned as much as you can learn here. You're at the peak of the peak. Take, take this and go to Microsoft or Google or some, go big, go big. Like you are ready to fly. And that's a huge compliment. and. Um, I, there's nothing, <coughs> excuse me, nothing more thrilling to me than having those persons come back uh, at a Christmas or a birthday and be like, dude, thank you so much. Thank you for just giving me the freedom to go. Uh, like you were done. Like you were tapped out. It was time for you to fly. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that's my leadership style. I, I love everybody that I have an opportunity to work alongside of in any fashion to go on and do great work. And I always tease them, do great work or I'll haunt you the rest of your life. Well, and, and I think there's something to be, I think there's something to be said for, for always striving to do great things in whatever it is, you know, it, it could be a simple problem. It could be a complex problem, but when you have the right people in the right place who are gifted in those areas, that's how problems get solved in a brilliant way. Like I'm sure there's a lot of problems that you could solve if you, if you had the time, but why would you, why would you do that when somebody is more gifted at that specific problem set? And you can give them that ability to be able to to shine and, and grow in what, what they want to aspire to. And I think that that's kind of that secret that a lot of, I've, I've noticed a pattern with a lot of CEOs that it's it's about giving people that that opportunity to just do what they do best. And, and it's, a, it's a very human intelligence side of thing. And it's a very human centric side of thing. And I, I think it's it's a quality that I've noticed across many successful CEOs and, and CEOs that lead with, with heart and that lead with culture. Um, because I think that's a huge thing. There, there are different leadership styles, but I've noticed the ones that generally come from that startup stage and really grow something that's, that's meaningful. It comes with heart because you have to be scrappy with a startup. Um, and, and that's kind of just part of, part of the job description. I don't think everybody's cut out to be, an entrepreneur or a leader of a startup or to be able to get in the mud with everybody and do that same type of work. I think, I think it takes a special quality to be able to do that. And so water, what has kind of been your connection of, of water and farming and agriculture? And what, what is the bigger picture of what, what the water problem is? 
I grew up in a dairy community. I'm originally from Wisconsin. No, no concern for water use or not. I moved to the Pacific Northwest when I was very young. The uh, longer story there, different podcast. Um, <laughs> when I was out of college, uh, but I, I had the skill set from a working perspective, right? So I had that built-in machine of I am capable of doing work because it was something that you had to do on a daily basis on a dairy farm at least twice a day. Um, and at a minimum, plus supporting everything else that went into a dairy operation. Um, but I later on during my tech career and startup days, I ended up going back into farming, going back to the land. So I ran, believe it or not, a hog farm I, out southeast uh, King County and, uh, and close to Seattle, Washington, about an hour and 10 minutes, 15 minutes of southeast of Seattle. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. So having been in Washington State for over 30 years post-college, um, and having property that used tremendous amounts of water, which hogs do, and the uses of that, and then the droughts over the last two and a half years, um, all called my name. The interesting part was though, <clears throat> for me where I had the switch was being in Tucson originally, and then the Valley, Phoenix and ASU, and I, I at the time I lived in East Mesa, there was, I felt a better communication style to the populace about being water sensitive than there is now being here again over 30 years later, which is just so mm. confusing to me with the Colorado going down. So I've always had this as this pre-programmed, like one of, I would say one of my number one pet peeves in life is people that waste water. It drives me absolutely bonkers. And I'm not, uh, I'm not a Karen, although that's my wife's name. Um, that would, is going to harp on any of these things, but, you know, inside, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's water. That's uh, drinkable, potable water. That's just going down into either sewer line or septic system. That is not going to be reused or repurposed. Um, the Washington state, Vancouver, living on both sides of the border during the last part of the 10 years of my career, um, have been on fire. I mean, let's be honest, the, the smoke has gone across the country, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the trade winds pushing the smoke across the U.S. It's been crazy. California, I mean, come on, are you serious? Uh, the Klamath Valley being shut down, the Klamath Basin, you know, one of the heartland producers for products in the United States, the taps turned off. Never in my life would I thought I would see that. Would I expect to see that something in a Tucson environment being more shut down? Yes, but I expect to see that on the Pacific side of the country. Never, like never, not even in California, uh, especially in the Central Valley. I never thought I would see this happen in my life. Oregon and the Palouse, you know, where they're growing, you know, thousands and thousands of acres of monocrops that are needed, but they are monocrops. Um, and then that's that drought spread into, you know, the central part of the U.S. and up through Canada and all their green belt as well in the, in the central provinces. Like, whoa, I saw a posting on LinkedIn. I, I, I pay quite a bit of attention to LinkedIn and uh, just from my technology space in the past and been somewhat participative on a lot of things. I have a decent amount of followers and have my own LinkedIn site for technical things. I saw this company that made a posting about water and I basically started there. I'm like, yes, I'm 100% in. So this is the first opportunity in my life that I honestly hunted down and all I ever heard was no, 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 no. You're not the right 
space, you're not in the right sector, you don't come from the right background, um, or they have the right pedigree or technical degrees. Uh, and my comments were always the same. Yes, yes, and yes, you are 100% true. I am a dairy kid. I did raise hogs. I can talk to anybody about water. I know how much produce, uh, water goes into produce production, uh, into monocrop or off a pivot. I know all these things. I'm definitely not the right candidate, but I am the right candidate to lead this company. So in a lot of ways, if you believe these things, uh, finally the nose started to become somewhat of a maybe. Uh, I didn't give up and they became a yes. And it took quite a while. And it took quite a while, especially from the investment standpoint and investors, because they were, they were a solid no. We need somebody from Big Ag that has a degree in pedigree and soil types, uh, you know, agriculture, biome, all these things. And I'm like, do you? Or do you need somebody that can build a business with the right culture, put the cornerstones of the business in place so it can have the opportunity to grow and flourish, make sure we have the right people in place so they can do their jobs well and feel really intrinsically valued. And by the way, make the farmers or anybody that's touching our products really know that we are making a difference right now in the world today. So mm -hmm. the bottom line for me from an Uptair perspective is I've been saying it since I've been here all the way since August 1st. There's nobody that's going to look me in the eye and tell me from a gardening perspective, a home perspective, a horticulture perspective, a greenhouse perspective, a cannabis grower or big egg. I love wasting water. Nobody's going to say that, but you are. You're not using water to the best way it can and should be used. We have one of many technologies that are available to help in that process. Do I feel it's the best right now? Yes, I do. I also feel it's the most different. So it's bringing so many different elements that go into how we manage a water, this precious water resource, to have the potential to use less water, to make the soil more healthy, to have the potential to use less fertilizer and chemicals. And oh, by the way, you're probably going to get a bonus that your yields higher. So, whoa, you're saving money and you just made more money. It doesn't sound bad. In fact, I shouldn't give this away, but we're gonna we're working on some really interesting pricing models that we're almost gonna make this a profit center for the farmers and especially the big ag producers that it's gonna be kind of game-changing and incentivized. So we want to incentivize these people to use less water because we feel like it's doing the right things all the way around. Um, and then it's gonna be an incentive uh, to, to, to pay us less. Like what company builds a model on you're gonna pay us less for using less things. But that, that's kind of the unique change in thinking and how we're doing things that I feel will be very, very beneficial. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of haters. There's gonna be a lot, of, a lot of people that say no. So typically, as you know, Steve, in our space, if you, the first thing you look up, if you, um, you look for structured water, Wikipedia, it's a myth. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Um, yeah. So what what does what does Uptera do in general? So there's there's a lot of discussion as, as far as like what biomimicry is, which is a very interesting concept. If you're very deep in the industry, you know what biomimicry is. Um, but what is that concept, and like what does Uptera technically do? So I know you guys have a lot of technologies, and it saves a lot of water. But I think the biggest question that a lot of people have is how. So there, there's very simple patterns and methodologies that have been used for thousands and thousands of years. And I will safely say this, I am not the expert to talk to you about this. 
if you want to have this conversation, you need to talk to the huge brains that are behind what Optera is. I can tell you in my language, which is extremely lay, lay person language, I, I always like to look at things from the technology that you have in your phone. So there's crystals in here, 100% rare earth mineral. They have certain functions and charges that work in conjunction with other elements to make the phone work effectively from a memory standpoint to a connectivity standpoint to just a transmission standpoint. All these things work together in conjunction. That's my background from a technical perspective. Optera has done the same thing with basically a water valve or what goes on to a pivot. So through structuring water in this case, the first thing I, I in my layperson's language like to say is, there's no two snowflakes that look alike. In fact, a snowflake in Russia looks different than a snowflake in Maine that looks different than a snowflake in British Columbia. Why is that? It's not because of the water coming, falling from the clouds that's freezing that creates a water crystal. It's because these things are charged with certain elements that are creating a different structure homogeneous to that region. So it's really region specific, which is why the soil is different in each of these locations. You know, in essence, it's almost like a geochromatic snow shower, which is very micro geochromatic snow shower. It's very specific to that area. Water does the same thing. Coming in completely wide open eyes. So take this perspective from somebody in traditional technology that started in 1991 when I started. Looking, looking at it from that perspective, seeing things under a micron microscope, there's no difference that water coming through a pipe is different than water that goes through an, an up-terra structuring water unit. The, the, the activation, the, the, the energy in that water is as true as when I was running mountains in the Pacific Northwest and whether drinking water out of a pipe that came from the city of Enumclaw or drinking water that come out of a fresh mountain spring way up in the mountains. And this water is just so vibrant. You, you're in that environment with that fresh oxygen and all that positive energy. Um, to, to me, it's the most eclectic natural drug on the planet. And what I would run, for example, after rain or big rains all the time uh, in the mountains, and you come out of this fresh oxygen with fresh water and you're like, whoa, I, this is, must be heaven on earth because that's what it feels like. I'm not saying up there goes to that level of structure and water, but what I can tell you is the water that's coming out of our units has the same similar characteristics that's coming out of a waterfall. It's so fresh and so vibrant. The interesting thing is it actually changes the, the molecular structure of this in a good way to take on what we call amendments. So the biomimicry of amendments, which are put into the fields and with regularity, whether it be chemical or fertilizer or not, that are treating soil, treating pests, treating everything. Well, the water can attach to these things now. In fact, the most amazing lab experiment I've heard was playing music through water, which is something that was, I, I literally took these type of microphone uh, headphones off and I'm like, I'm convinced. Okay, like done. I, I didn't know that was even possible. Uh, I wish they would have done that on day one versus like day 45 in the lab, but I, when I heard that, I'm like, okay. And then they started showing me the things you could do with water, you know, make it come out of a, a uh, just a regular water spout that they can make it go at 45 degree angles down, straight down, just by charging, make it go in a helix structure, just by a different charge. The, this stuff is so alive. So even if 
even if all we did with the crystals and the specializations that we put into our valve units that go into at this time primarily big agriculture units is change the structure of that water to give you the opportunity to use less water i'm sold it's in but when we're starting to collect we have agronomists in the field that we're paying we've done a tremendous amount of tests and r d that's coming from the field um, we blew it on one set of trials straight up like i would expect but the set of trials that we're doing in the southern part of the U.S. right now, the results are out of bounds, like out of bounds. I saw it with my own two eyes. We took a big field tour. I walked around with the farmers and the agronomists. I learned more than I ever thought I could even know about products. I never, I know what they are, but I never said in the field I'm not from the area of cotton, you know, soybeans, peanuts, stuff that you don't grow in Washington State, for example. And it was just incredible to see the, the root density, the root thickness, the compact uh, area of all the produce or fruits on these plants, how the energy is being used, not reaching very tall from a plant structure, but low and healthy with just you know, cotton, have, having cotton bowl after cotton bowl so tightly packed together. It was like a farmer's dream. And it was so re encouraging. So, on a control and test field, um, we're so excited right now. I just We had a meeting this morning. Uh, it's uh, October 13th, 2021 today. Uh, in two weeks, we should have amazing data from the harvests. And they've been collecting data for the last six months. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, exciting, invigorating, huge potential for this technology right now. And it's so incredibly needed. I can't wait for the opportunity to introduce this into different markets and different market segments. We're going to be very, very conservative, Steve, to start this out. I have to be honest with you. So we're going after the big producers right now, which means people that are running a pivot that's pushing 350 up to 800 gallons a, a minute of water. Like they're pushing water. Like these, these, mm -hmm. and they have to, right? These fields take millions of gallons of water. Uh, and some of the results we've seen right now, we're using honestly a third less of the water. Like wow. right on. Wow. Again, two two smaller samples. I, I want to be very cautious to anybody mm -hmm. that listens to this, but the, the data is so promising. It's basically the farmers in the field were, as you know, salt of the earth humans. They don't mix their words up for any particular reason. They're saying, I'm literally just playing now because I cannot believe what's happening in my field. I've never seen this in 24 years. You know, we have protein producers, for example, that I've never seen the quality uh, in a chicken house of the chickens before. They usually go in the mornings and, you know, the helpers pick up the dead birds, right? So it's, just, it's part of the process. Well, when we were there, one of the producers mentioned that, I, that we've had no dead chickens in 10 days. And he's like, I've never seen that in 24 years. Scooped wow. up some poop off the, off the ground and out the chicken coop, which, you know, they're tightly packed in. There's 50,000 chickens a house. Uh, he's like, look at this. And I don't know what I'm looking at. I even know we had chickens, right? So I, I don't know in the chicken house different. And he's like, it's solid. That's what I'm showing you. This Usually the chickens have diarrhea. This is solid. These are healthy chickens. And I'm like, whoa. You know, and that's, these are, it's not a big enough sample size, but it the, the results are coming in. The optimism's there. Um, we're doing some other technologies with this water that we'll talk about at another day that are definitely more in the quantum field and the quantum entanglement field. So we're working with aspects of water and nature that are very, very in depth. 
again, all new fields, even vernacular for me, this is all brand new. I'm seeing it with my own two eyes. I'm, uh, if anybody follows astrology, I'm a Capricorn. I'm a very linear human. And my emotions are very, you know, very controlled. Um, you know, you want somebody to count on as a friend, you want to count on a Capricorn. They're not going to be judgmental. They're not going to go too high or too low. And so I'm like, but I'm still kind of like the Missouri thing. You show it to me. I got to see this. I got to be proven this is true before we can actually say these things. And so we've changed a lot of the language. A lot of it was a little bit too far ahead and promising things that weren't real. Uh, we changed the website to be dialed back to very simple language and very simple metrics. And here's what we're doing. Here's what we're going to offer. And then we're going to very much focus back on our very basic core competency and what the business can do. So what we use from a tank perspective to what we use from uh, what our two products are TerraFlow and TerraScribe perspective. So there's two pieces to this puzzle. It looks like a big water tank and then the unit that looks like a big water uh, goes to the pivot directly, almost like a filter, but it's big. Um, mm -hmm. And all these things work in conjunction with one another, how the water is treated, how the water is being spun through there, um, and how the water is being energized. So we're literally lifting the energy of this water up to be useful. Um, the, the greatest compliment that we got on this last field tour, I felt, was somebody who had, uh, he, it was 120 acres, I think he had a 450 cattle on there, 650, 850 pounds finishing cattle on Bermuda. Um, he was watering with this pivot like normal, hot, dry, windy, south day like normal. So typically watering every day, pumping 450, 500 gallons a minute. So pump and water. Mm -hmm. um, he got called by one of his neighbors and got in trouble, I guess, with the county because the water was flowing over the road. And basically like, you got a, you got a river happening here. <clears throat> He's like, what do you mean? I must have sprung a leak. So we went out to his field at the pivot head. And no, no leak, uh, nothing happened. The water was so happy and the ground even happier in my lay person language that it could only take so much water at a time. So for the first time in his life he's ever seen, the water was actually running off. He's like, whoa. He turned the pivot off when we were there for 10 days. He did 14 days total of not running any water in this field with all these cattle on it. He's like, look at this grass. One, it's all even. It's all the exact same height. Two, this should be brown. Like this should be burnt brown, not even healthy for these cattle to be on. Like I should be feeding hay or grain right now. I have water for 10 days. I'm like, that's unreal. I wish we could wow. have a video and prove something with that. It was a test that we didn't even know to try, right? So not even something that wasn't even in our scope or thought, but very, very promising, very uplifting. And then at the same token, just because I want to be very honest with you, uh, on, on a bunch of potato growers, we blew the test, like totally screwed it up. Uh, we didn't have field managers or persons involved from our company there. So a big business lesson is when we do something or install things, we need a human that has some representation of an Uptera brand or badge or hat or something on. Mm -hmm. And then to check in with the farmers, much akin to the great work that a lot of the big ag companies do. Uh, you know for a fact that, and even in your area, uh, the big producers or fertilizers or seed people, they work hand in hand with them. They are in the fields with the farmers. It's part of their makeup and it's, that's part of the services they provided. So we did not do that with the potato farmers. We left it to the farmers and they did a, a wonderful job. They did exactly what they should do. 
which was their normal production season. Saw no results, no difference from control to treated. Well, there could have been changes that we, we could have adapted. It could have been too wet, too dry, too whatever. Um, could have added some amendments that probably would have been more beneficial. And we, we didn't do that. So a good business lesson that we're going to take forward is this goes hand in hand with having somebody in the field to work in conjunction with a farm family or a producer or a cannabis producer, whatever the case may be, that, you know, we need to show up. So up here needs to show up and be present and work hand in hand with all of these producers. And uh, one, it established a huge amount of trust, which is my most important aspect as a human, because you have two things you take with you when you pass away, your name and your reputation. And then it lasts mm -hmm. for one generation. And if you have kids, that's usually their generation. If you're a superstar like you, Steve, you might have 10 generations <laughs> that know your name. But for me, definitely one generation. So, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> the businesses are going to be the same. A business to me is the same way. You have your name and your reputation. I don't care what you do for your business. It doesn't make any difference to me. And I'm always interested is the word I'll use very politely. I'll go hashtag interested on that, actually. Um, that the excuses I hear uh, or there was a reasoning for not living up to earning trust or we're living up to your company name or your mission statement. Or whatever. It's very fascinating to me there, how squishy that can become. Um, I try to be as straightforward and honest as a human as I can be. That way I never have to remember what I say. You may hate me, Steve, but I'll know exactly what I said to you because I didn't, I don't have to remember what I made up. It's, mm -hmm. I just said what I said. And I feel businesses should do the same thing, good or bad. And if you make a mistake, you should pay. That's just the way mm -hmm. it should be. No excuses. Um, yeah. So we're in that place right now. We're paying for a few mistakes for sure uh, and trying to figure out what's next. But uh, the good thing I can tell you is if we have the great fortune of speaking in a year from now, it'll be a totally new company with a very new direction, a very specific business plan that will be our, our guide, uh, not our Bible, but our guide. And it'll also give us the opportunity to bring on some wonderful people to work with across the planet because we are so much interest in what we're doing. And even the little bit of conversations that we've had and the very little social media presence we've had, the interest for what we're doing is so massive right now. You know, speaking to people throughout Europe and South America that are also facing water scarcity issues and looking to do things better, save the resources better, make the soil healthy. Uh, take away some of the um, challenges that we've had for for decades of mono producing crops that and it, mm. it's it's not a gmo thing I, i'm a, i'm a god bless gmo person which probably is very contrarian to a lot of persons because mm. if if you can grow something in africa that uses no water but can feed villages i'm in give them the gmo because it saves villages a human where we can do better in things and use native or more uh regionalized product that is conducive to the soil type and uh, more fortunate countries like America or Canada or Europe or even some of the South American countries, we should try to focus on that. So um, my perspective is a little bit different, but I really know our goal and our mission is so simple. Save water, do better things for the soil, help persons that are producing these things save some money and give a greater yield and a healthier product for the people. If we're able to do even two of those five things, I think we have built an amazing company. I personally believe we can do all five. Wow. That's, I mean, that's incredible. Some of those 
I mean, use cases that you guys have already had. Um, because I mean, I, I remember there was this, um, I was in, I was in high school and I, I watched this, uh, our teacher showed us this video of a person who, um, made rice and put it in two different containers and put a good word and a bad word on the other. And every single day for 30 days, same environment, walked over, said the good word to the water and said the bad word to the other water. And after 30 days, the water, the rice that had the good word on it, perfectly fine. Edible looked brand new. The one with the bad word on it was completely moldy, destroyed, horrible. And everything was kept consistent. And to me, that was the biggest indicator that water reacts to its environment in a way that we didn't necessarily understand. And the way that the you guys have been able to structure water and to be able to make that structure conducive for soils, which I think soil health is a huge thing. When you talk about monocrops, like soil health is a huge thing when it comes down to that. And the fact that nutrition has actually, of, of crops, has decreased since, you know, 1950s, every single decade, the actual yield of the nutrition of each specific unit is lower. I would imagine that your technology not only increases the yield, but it also increases the nutritional value of each unit, right? That that is a straight fact. The the lab results that we're seeing are amazing. Why I'm not talking about that, and I'll I'll be again really honest with you because I want to be very careful. Is we need to have the stuff third party certified. Mm -hmm. So we need to go mm -hmm. through the next step. So I would say honestly, Steve, we probably have a good six months of doing a lot of these things in house before we we have the bandwidth to make sure that uh, things are being third party certified. And, mm -hmm. and yes, I, I agree with your bad word, good word, rice growing lab experiment. I never thought that honestly it could be such a true case. And we've spoken about that as well. So that's part of the other things that we're working on um, for sure. And there's a lot more to be said about that subject matter exactly. And again, I'd love to revisit that in maybe a shorter segment. Uh, and mm -hmm. we can go into the woo-woo region of, of technology mm -hmm. and growing things on our planet that a lot of humans will click off right away when they're listening to our podcast. And we're yep. going to get a lot of people are going to be like uh, sharing that, that podcast because mm -hmm. um, I'm always very careful on how we say these things because I don't like to... Um, put categories around humans or how they think. I also want to be very clear that what we're doing is, is definitely revolutionary, although it's been used for thousands of years. Yeah, it's not, I, we're, we're using things and practices that have been known and have been silenced uh, in many ways, just silenced for, for, many reasons probably the biggest reasons is you know the oldest reasons of follow the money and even thousands of years ago um but we're we're our goal is to bring some of these opportunities of technology advances through nature which is why we're our our name is you know uptera technology by nature to back to life and we're there should be no surprises in this there should be nobody to be like that's a bunch of crap you know, some of the technology might be a little bit out there for humans, totally fine, understandable. Most of the technology mm -hmm. in this device here, nobody understands how that works. Like, how is it possible this is more powerful than most laptops on the planet or computers? Yeah. So 
it, it's the same scenario. And I, you know, it, it's always the, the same question I, I gave everybody in when I've been through my, my technical career and different times in my journey. Some of the most proficient companies, technical companies can do things at two, two button pushes. It only takes two clicks, whatever you're doing. Take any big or small. The more simple it is, the better it is. Well, how many millions of lines of code are behind those two button pushes? Mm -hmm. So in essence, what we're doing that's although very, very simple from a water structure perspective that we're doing in the field on a tank and what looks like a big valve that's going into a pivot, in this case, or into a chicken house. Very simple stuff, looks very simple. Looks like regular plumbing, if you will, in a lot of cases. But the technology that's happening there has millions of lines of code in it. That's what we can talk about later. And I probably will bring in uh, one of my teammates uh, mm -hmm. to talk about that specifically. And then I might just introduce and then move out of the way. And then <laughs> you, you guys can have a wonderful conversation uh, about some really interesting quantum entanglement theories that are based in nature on a daily basis that we don't see, but we see every day. Well, and that takes me back to the beginning of our conversation of talking about, you know, the idea of solving macro problems, all right? There's, there's always your macro and your micro to every single thing. And in order to do the macro, you need the micro and vice versa. Um, there's almost like a symbiotic relationship that happens. And most of the time when you have a revolutionary idea, it's one of those things of, oh man, why didn't I think about that? It's so simple, like save water and increase yield. And that's what, that's the macro side of things. But the micro is those millions of lines of code and the, the deep, deep, deep understanding of incredibly complex things that not very many people on earth can understand. And it's being able to conduct that symphony, if you will, that, that is your job is to like take those brilliant minds of, of the people on Uptera's team who, who can solve those micro problems and bring those into the macro in a way that people can totally understand. Cause I mean, I, I'm with you on the, on the quantum side. Like there's so much, there's so many things that we don't understand, um, the way our world works. And it is a, I mean, it's almost like the understanding of our ocean. We only understand what, like 2% of our ocean, um, like it's very much the same and we're made of water and most of our earth is made of water. There's so much that we don't understand that it doesn't necessarily all need to be understood by everyone, but it needs to be communicated in a way that people can be open to accepting it. And I, I think your leadership style and the way that you have shaped that team to be able to solve a very, very big problem in a seemingly simple way um, makes it easy for people to adopt. I mean, if at the end of the day, if a farmer can not only use less water, but get greater yield and then greater quality out of each one of those units like that, that to them is very tangible. It's very valuable. And it's something that is easy to go. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But if you're trying to sell them on, you know, a really obscure concept that necessarily they don't might not understand, they're like, no, that's, that's too much for me. I'm just going to stick to what I know. Agreed. Here's a very simple, uh, very simple analogy for you. I had an opportunity to speak with uh, this group of farmers that have been doing these tests, and uh, I just had a short, you know, 10 minute statement. Uh, this is in the US. It has nothing to do with not working with anybody, our neighbors and friends to the South, North, or around the world. My comment was basically this the United States and the farmers here have the potential to take away food insecurity for everybody on the planet, period. End of story. Stop. We are not allowed to do so. 
we have the tools, the resources, and the technology to do so. We should be able to be all at one moment in our time to be able to offer the world enough food to be nobody has food insecurity. And it, it could start and stop in the USA. Why can't we have the most healthy land and soil on the planet as well? Why don't we be the leader for that? Why don't we start with those two goals and take this to a whole nother level? Like, if we're going to change the game, let's change the game. I, I, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, you know, we're so bombarded by, you know, uh, up to 10,000 images a day. It's apparently what we get in our current society in 2021. We're not programmed for that as humans. A lot of the data that we get is, is very bombarded on one side. It's usually quite negative. It's, it's more because uh, it's no but, and I'm a yes and person. So it's no but. And I, I feel like that's been a lot of the case. And I, I'm so confused now, even from, um, you know, having gone through the horrendous experience of COVID that's still happening planet wide. Why are we experiencing starvation and water insecurity now more so than we did before? Like, why, why didn't we think ahead to take care of these countries first? The resources are available. We just have to allocate. So this becomes part of that mission statement of bringing things together. So our, our goals, as you can imagine, uh, and our personal mantras, if you will, uh, of what we're building around this Upterra machine are really very altruistic, very high focused. We're not screwing around with this. We're, we're going to go for it. And, and we're gonna go for it until we get told we can't do it, but I don't think that's gonna happen. And we build this momentum, 2021, excuse me, 2022 is gonna be a huge year for our company. Um, I can't wait to speak to you next uh, when we have the opportunity, I hope one more often than a podcast, uh, to tell you the successes we're having and the real data that's third party cer certified to give you the keep in your back pocket. I'm like, dude, we're gonna talk again. Because yeah, we're we're, we're going to go for it. Yeah, and and even from like the application of Uptera is is in so many different industries. I mean, that's that's where you start thinking about you know from a consumption standpoint. You talk about food scarcity, water scarcity, but now as you mentioned, cotton, like cotton is used in so many different products, and you're now you're looking at affecting an entire other region of of business and consumerism, you're, you're looking at now the product market and that, you know, as, as more humans are on earth and we need to consume food, we need to consume things. Do I think there's some overconsumption there? Sure. Um, but regardless, I don't think you're going to necessarily change that machine. It's going to be changing how that machine is working and how can you make it more efficient? How can you make things last longer? How can you make things higher quality? All of those problems need to solve. If you go to everyone and just say, hey, look, consume less, they'll be like, well, I keep up with the Joneses and the one down the street's doing it, so why wouldn't I? That's a much harder thing to overcome than, well, this is the highest quality cotton literally on earth, and it uses completely less water, and you only need to buy one shirt. Here's your answer. Like that, that you're almost kind of doing it through the back door to be able to actually solve bigger problems that are in industries outside of food. Um, which also is a is a huge topic of conversation, of course. But um, it's that idea that now you have a multiple multiple application for the product in a way that people may not know Uptera in everyday language, but they're going to feel what you guys have done for the industry. I think as time goes on, the potential is limitless. 
from a consumer standpoint to all across the spectrum. Um, there are industries that have been discussed and offered uh, for us to pursue you know, from water utility companies. Um, the one thing we've found is for some reason, our water cleans pipes. So if you have dirty pipes and this water's coming through that's very energized, uh, the filters on the other end of a water system that we have been uh, working with have to be changed often, like more often than I ever thought they would change. Um, that's very interesting in, to me from the perspective of the issues that we've had with pipes and, and the U.S. specifically. Um, to wow. huge, huge water resource companies that are using that um, are often using potable water, like take mining, you know, carbon uh, companies that are uh, you know in the coal and coal and gas industry, they consume billions of gallons of water. Um, mm -hmm. It's oftentimes potable, drinkable water. Um, so yeah, I'm motivated. Uh, you know, in my personal mission, and I know the company will be not far behind or directly aligned to do what we can do in any spot to make sure that the, when we're using water, we're using it the best ability and the best efficient way that we can in the most effective way, saving lives, saving energy, because there's so much energy, electric or diesel or take your pick uh, that goes into even using and pushing water. People don't realize the carbon footprint that actually goes behind that. Mm -hmm. it, it's yeah, the supply chain of the whole thing. It, it's big. So by us doing our little part, if we're able to reduce electric, diesel, any type of carbon footprint that's going into pushing water, I also feel we've done good work. So it's a that's big awesome. mission, brother. We're, this, there's a lot of responsibility. There's going to be a lot of eyes and ears looking at us to make a slip up or a mistake. Um, we're going to be challenged with dealing with very high levels of um, laws and rules and codes that are not been seen or used for quite a while that we need to be very gentle with and to use very wisely. So mm -hmm. there, this is a big responsibility. And um, I honestly am doing the best I can to stay extremely grounded to make sure that we're just taking one step very close together, a small step at a time to do the right thing and to do it really, really well. I love that. I, and, and thank you so much just for everything that you guys are doing. I mean, it's a it's a big problem to solve and you guys are doing it with humility and, and keeping, I think your idea of being grounded, um, I think is going through the company too. Um, it's the idea like if we're going to do this and let's do it right. Let's, let's not take shortcuts. Let's do the right thing and good things will come from it. Um, especially in the long term. Um, do you, so for somebody who is not familiar with, um, or not at all connected with Uptera or something like that, and they're interested in, you know, kind of improving their water consumption, their quality of either purchasing food, whatever that is, what would you suggest would be a really good step that somebody could take to just kind of take that step in the right direction? Well, you certainly are welcome to contact us. We're on all the social media platforms. It's uptera.co. It's super easy to find us. And we're very personable people, easy to speak with, which I would be totally embarrassed if we weren't. Um, so that that's the easy thing and for simple things it's just it's a conscious choice right so and I, I feel it's happening a lot across the planet right now water scarcity and water insecurity 
Um, and I feel this issues come up tremendously. And um, having recently moved to the desert Southwest again, and the levels of the Colorado um, and the drought that I experienced throughout the Pacific Northwest, it's a huge wake up call. Um, so, you know, you know, how people are using their water on a daily basis, I feel is really coming to light. And by the way, the prices have been adjusted on that. So you're going to start to feel that in your wallet a lot, a lot further. Um, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that's a supply demand thing, but it all, ultimately it is a supply demand issue. It's a very basic business principle versus the water companies trying to gouge us or make it more difficult for lower income persons to survive. Uh, there definitely needs to be a metric how we balance out that pricing structure. Um, but it, a conscientious effort towards what you're using for all aspects of your life to live lightly on the planet and live carefully on the planet, I feel are very wise. Water is one of the main things that you can do on a daily basis that are so simple. And, you know, as true as it comes, and I know your experience at ASU is the same as mine. You know, when you turn off the turn off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth, for example. I mean, simple things are when you're shaving, don't run the water into your, whatever the case may be, like really simple. And a lot of persons capture a lot of the water and repurpose and reuse the water. Uh, thankfully, rainwater is allowed to be captured off of homes even when it does rain here. So that's a huge thing to do. Um, but just really hyper-conscious of, even in areas, here's the interesting thing to me, Steve, even in areas where they get the most rain on the planet, which used to be, you know, feel like the Pacific Northwest. It, we really don't get that much rain there. It's more of a drizzle, I think, as you're aware, versus the heavy monsoon rains you get in the, the Southwest or through the Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, just gray days off the coast and, you know, drizzly, a little bit light rain. But even filling in those areas, it's amazing how the water reservoirs don't fill up and how dependent you are on a snowpack, something as innocent as did we have cold enough weather to get enough snow to get the water, enough water for the city of Seattle or Los Angeles this year that are relying on those things. Um, so everybody is totally connected. There's a finite, finite amount of water. There's no more water that's being produced on the planet right now. What we have is what we have. Majority of it's salt water. Uh, fresh water is literally like gold. Uh, there's a reason in Mad Max that water became one of the most valuable assets. Uh, they weren't far off in their reality in a lot of areas that are having severe droughts. So my recommendation to anybody is look at any company, any way, anything you can do to save all of your resources, but in our case specifically in this conversation, specifically on water. Even putting a regulator in your home or on your faucets or in your showers is very simple, very not expensive, easy to do. Um, you really can't mess up the plumbing by doing that. Nothing's going to go bad. But a very simple device that's you know twenty to thirty dollars can make a huge difference from the water that you're using in the home. So I, I recommend looking at all those aspects and. Um, you know, there's persons much more qualified than I am to speak about those uh, things, but those are things I think about always, just what can we do better on a daily basis? And, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about for persons listening to go hug trees every day. But, you know, the funny thing is you kind of should because they still need water. It's true. It's true. It's all an interconnected system that, um, you know, we not be maybe in contact with it every day, but we're definitely connected to it uh, for sure. Do you, do you remember your very first sustainable purchase that you made consciously? You may find this surprising. 
but I always kind of was outside the norm. I didn't really march to the same beat as a lot of humans. So um, I was eating buckwheat and not grains when I was very, very young for no particular reason, just because I, I guess I liked it and it was my calling. Or maybe I'd done it, if you believe, in uh, past lives and past life. I don't know. I don't know the reason for that. I've been this way my entire life. I no, I have no role models uh, that have done this. I learned from everybody. I'm I'm definitely a stand back and watch and learn human. Um, I didn't hang out in a hippie commune. Definitely was not where I was, how I grew up uh, in the Midwest. Uh, nor was it how I was, uh, you know, went through high school or college for sure. But it's always been my sustainable sustainable thinking and how I live my life. Um, I mean, I'm a consumer like any human that's been in North America. Let's be candid with one another, even the technology that we're talking on today. Let's be honest with each other. Mm -hmm. However, um, the things that I get, I always feel like I have to share equally or more. So what I give, I expect to get back 10 times, even if it's a thank you. Uh, and it's it's that golden rule to which I've consistently lived my life and tried to live very, very lightly from a food perspective to a growing things that people may not have to give to them, to feed them. Um, and to share. And, uh, but my sustainability, I, again, I wish I could point to one aha moment, but it really started when I was very, very young and it never stopped. And, you know, I shopped even during college days uh, at Tucson and in the Valley at the, the farmer's market. That was my shopping experience. I've got produce even as a college kid with a very limited budget. Uh, and when I got sick, I went to the shaman or medicine people there and at the farmer's markets. I didn't go to traditional doctors. And I, I, and in fact, I didn't go to a traditional doctor for almost 20 years at one point in my life for no purpose. I just like, why? What, what, why? I eat the right things. I'm doing the right things. If I needed anybody, I could go to an energy healer or you know, a, uh, a natural path. Uh, and they would give me something natural, like something that's been used for thousands of years. It's just always made... And I'm not saying anything bad about uh, modern medicine. It's it's a godsend. I mean, the things they can do are incredible. I like how they're, everything is coming together now. That's, mm -hmm. I think, where it should have been all along. And honestly, the Mayo Clinic was one of the first, you know, with their cancer treatment mm -hmm. centers. They had stuff that was working from meditating to yoga to natural foods to going vegan to you know, treating the whole machine versus, oh, my gosh, I have a skin issue. Well, is it a skin issue? It, mm -hmm. It's surfacing as a skin issue, but is it? So it, that's kind of been my journey all along. And I don't know what's called me to that path, but I'm really grateful for the things I've learned. And um, and on all perspectives and everybody's viewpoints, I'm down with. I, I get it. I understand. And I'm not a judgment human. Um, but it's just been, been my journey. And that's how I like to live my life. That's incredible. Um, and Dan, thank you so much for just taking the time to to hop on the podcast, go through all these things. And I mean, it's just been incredible to get to know you and, and your mindset around how you see the world and, and how you're solving big problems. I think that, um, I wish that there were more people like you in, in leadership positions, um, with, you know, such a heart to be able to lead and to solve problems where you're thinking about other people and, and how it can impact more people than just the immediate need that you see. Um, I just think there's so much, I have so much respect for that mindset, um, and the way that you've been able to approach this whole problem of water. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, and 
if you want to share any anything about how to you know connect with Uptera. But I just wanted to thank you so much for just being a part of this and taking the time to explain, you know, the problem of water and how you guys are approaching solving it. Thanks, brother. It means a lot to me. I appreciate that greatly. Yeah, we're easy to find. It's Uptera, U-P-T-E-R-R-A.co. We're everywhere on social media and on our website. So please reach out. We're all good people. Love to speak with you and look forward to lots of questions. Even some concerns. Happy to take it all. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. While you may not be directly involved in agriculture, it is undeniable that the technology Uptera has created is groundbreaking. Thanks to Dan for such a great conversation and educating everybody on just the complexity of water and the solution that they've been providing. And there are more links in the show notes for you to learn more about Uptera and what they're up to and kind of what the future is looking like when it comes to water. So if you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support goes a long way and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.